listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank my friends of the Rolling Stones for making that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. And we acknowledge that, hey, there are some good podcasts out there, but are they wicked good? Well, let's ask Butthead. Uh, no. <laughs> there you have it. Stick to Wrestling. Give us 60 minutes and we will give you a raw bone podcast, perhaps indeed. I'm John McAdam, and I want to bring on my convivial co-host, Mr. Sean Goodwin. Sean, how are you? I am great, and since I'm talking, that means I'm here to plug the Facebook page. And so, and what, what were the burning questions that were discussed? The burning issues of the day on the Facebook page? Who did Bob Backlund beat 40 years ago? Wait, isn't that the guy from the Big Rig Bounty Hunters? And what the hell is he doing to Bill Watts? Ever wonder what Thanksgiving was like at the Albano abode? And how many wrestling pitches could Debbie Harry possibly be? All that plus John's results, YouTube clips from the podcast, old school videos, clips, and a bunch of guys who have been to wrestling events around the world. There you go. And now now let me give you an example. Today, Sean put up a video uh, from a shoot interview with Terry Taylor where Terry talked about why his push got submarined in the NWA or why he had heat with Dusty Rhodes. And we're a little bit scattered here because Terry definitely, I mean, he got a clown push in 1987 when he was feuding with Nikita Koloff um, over the NWA slash UWF television titles. They made him look, uh, this is Dusty the Booker, made him look so bad at every turn that I was like, okay, Logic booking tells me that Terry Taylor is going to get even and win the TV title at Starcade 87, even though I knew he wasn't going to. And of course he didn't. But anyway, Taylor was talking about, you know, yeah, that's what happened. And the problem was that at least according to Taylor, he was impersonating Dusty on a plane when they were both in the WWF. So that was like 8990. And Dusty was wearing a Walkman, so Terry Taylor thought he couldn't hear, Dusty couldn't hear him, but Dusty could. And it made no sense because of the timing of it. You know, something happened in the past where Dusty buried Taylor. I'm going to say just by, I'm going to say it's true, because why else would he tell that story? It makes himself look awful. And I I think the issue here is the timing, because the interview was done by uh, Sean Oliver. He basically he mentions, was this in Florida? And Terry kind of sheepishly nodded. And then he said, Is, was this around like the polka dot time? And I don't know why he said that, but then Terry was kind of like, okay, yeah. I think he didn't even regard or didn't kind of grasp what he was saying about the polka dot thing. I think this happened when he was having his run in Florida. And you had made reference to the fact that they didn't do commercial flying in Florida. Maybe Terry and Dusty were going off to do a shot. But at some point when he was mentioning the Walkman, Terry made a big deal about the old, the new Walkman kind of, you know, that just came out. That's 1981. I think that's when this happened. Yeah, I, I kind of disagree because I don't, I can't see someone who was at Taylor's level in Florida in 1980 being on a private plane with Dusty. Plus, he did say he was in the WWF and he said they used uh, Southwest Airlines. And they were on the first flight in the morning, which I know the WWF did. So I, I think Taylor just kind of messed up his story, to be honest with you. The Doesn't, story I heard. I'm, I'm sorry, Sean. Go ahead. I was going to say, didn't Taylor have any shots in the WWF? Didn't he? Wasn't he part of that Florida exchange? They always sent guys over to New York. No, he he did a spot at Madison Square Garden in '80 or '81. I think it was late '80. There you and, go. Yeah, uh, may, yeah. You know what? Maybe. Uh, but then again. Dusty did bring Terry Taylor in in 1985 to JCP, and mm-hmm. he got he got a decent push at first. And here's what I heard happen, and this is what I heard a long time ago that messed up Terry Taylor's relationship with Dusty Rhodes. In 85, Taylor had already been told that he was losing the national title to uh, Buddy Landell at Starcade, and he was unhappy with his push. He was unhappy with everything. And Dusty held a meeting with all the talent, and he basically said, look, you know, we've brought in some new guys. We've combined the pool of talent from two offices, Georgia and Mid-Atlantic. And he, Dusty said, you know, I know that not everyone's happy with their push, and if you're just not happy and you want to leave, let us know. And Taylor, in the middle of this meeting, just says, okay, I want out, or something along those lines. I don't know if that was his exact words. 
and Dusty just didn't appreciate his tone or his attitude. So that's I, what I heard. It could be a combination of the two where Taylor doing that brought back his memory about the prior incident, too. And then he's like, OK, now we got a trend here. Uh, you know what? That that is a good point. I'm I'm still inclined to think it was both when they were both in the WWF. And here's another thing. Was Dusty really going to be that flipped out over someone doing an imitation of him on an airplane? I, I, you have no, to because he didn't say anything in the wrestling business. He didn't say anything. Yeah. He never, Dusty never said anything about it till years later. Dusty say anything at all? No. Well, he did when they were at that. And this is the other reason why I think it's 1981. Taylor made reference to 20 years later. They talked about it when they were at DDP's barbecue. What the hell are they doing at DDP's barbecue in 2010? 2001, they're all in WCW. So that makes perfect sense. Anyway, so they were all at the barbecue. And the catch of the story was that at one point, he was like doing an impersonation of Dusty, that old bit where, you know, Dusty would have the Walkman going and he, and he was like doing the impersonation so we can't hear him. Well, Dusty put down the volume. He goes, did you say anything? And he goes, no. Then he turned it back up and he started doing it again. Years later, they're talking about something else. And then Dusty just says the volume was off the entire time and walked away, which Taylor's like, you know what? Yep, I deserve that. Yeah, I'll tell you, I'll, I have a pretty good idea what those guys are doing at DDP's of barbecue. But anyway, oh, yeah, let's go on to the second part of our I, I thought it was a really cool conversation that we had with Bo James, part two coming up right now. I hope everyone likes it. So next up, uh, let's see, we have Ted Henschel. Says a lot of kind words, but my cut and paste wasn't working today, so thanks anyway. He was very kind. Uh, he was. Bo, what is the craziest thing you ever saw? This should be good. What is the craziest thing you've ever seen in your life in the wrestling business in a ring? In a ring. <laughs> If you have a better story outside the ring, I'll let you do that too. Uh, okay, I got one inside and outside. Jonesville, Virginia, like 30 years ago, when the business was starting to be opened up where anybody could get in. Ugh. And these guys come from somewhere in Kentucky. And, and I, I just asked Denny the other night the guy's name, and I forgot it again. Denny Millions was running the town. And one of the guys that he booked brought some guys, and he said, I've trained them. They'd never been in the ring in their life, I don't think. Maybe. I don't know. The guy wants to get juice. He wants to bleed. So he makes a blade, but he does not know how to make a blade. That's so an issue. That's a huge issue, especially when he's getting ready to do something even more dangerous. <laughs> he has no idea what he's doing. So he tapes up this full razor blade. He then lays it in his mouth. He is pile driven by the guy that he's wrestling. Who oh, my cut, God. And he cut the end of his tongue right off. <sighs> I mean, it fell out of his mouth, and this was blood. It was There was so much blood, you could smell it. <sighs> it was the nastiest thing that I have ever seen. And I was like 16 years old just trying to figure this business out. and I. And I remember being in the dressing room watching him, and I'm thinking, dude, that's not how you do that. And I was, <laughs> I'm just a kid breaking in. I'm thinking, well, maybe he knows more than I do. Maybe I missed something here. But, yeah, I, I've seen a lot of guys make them things, and that's not how you do it. Uh, that, that story, I, you know what? As soon as you started with he puts it in his mouth, I'm like, this is, this is going to be bad, and it was way worse than I thought it was going to be. Oh, my God. The worst outside was in Fleming Neon, Kentucky, a small little mountain town just across the border from Virginia, not far from Pikeville. It's like in between Wise and Pikeville, Wise, Virginia, Pikeville, Kentucky. It was either the 2nd or 3rd of July, and I had wrestled Tracy's mothers. We had rode together. We didn't know we were wrestling each other. So. Tracy had pulled the car around the back of the school and it's pitch black. And I got my, my friend, Mike DiMuzio from Philadelphia with me. Mike's one of them crazy Yankees that wants to be a Southern boy until he gets into these small towns and into these riots. And what I'm getting ready to tell you, then he wants to go home. So mm -hmm. we're leaving. So I have to sneak out of the building, go around where the car is parked. And it's 
pitch black. And Mike's standing there smoking a cigarette. I'm putting my stuff in the car. Tracy's standing there looking around, making sure nobody pulls up and sees us because this is still in the days where we kayfabed everybody. This guy goes running by me and Tracy at a dead run. I mean, you hear him coming, and then he's on you. You see him in a split second. Then he's gone. And you're like, wow, what, what was that? As he is gone, you hear the second guy coming. As the second guy gets to about where Tracy and I are at, he starts shooting at the first guy. I mean, pop, 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 pop. I dive in the back seat of the car. Tracy's on the ground trying to get underneath the car. Mike DiMuzio is standing there smoking his cigarette because he's on the other side of the car and didn't even see the guys run by us. And he says, man, somebody's shooting fireworks early. <laughs> and we're screaming at him to lay down. We got in that car and got out of there as fast as we could. One road in, one road out. Mike's like, we got to call the cops. We gotta, and I said, look, I can't ID anybody. They were in a blur. And I'm not coming back up here to testify against somebody's papa or brother or daddy or uncle or whatever. Mm-hmm. They will kill us, Mike. They will kill you dead. This is not far from where they hung the census taker in a tree in the early 2000s because he was asking too many personal questions. So you're not going to court against anybody up there. That's probably the top two crazy. And I've seen a lot of crazy stuff, but that's probably the top two. Show title. Don't don't be a census taker in whatever (laughs) town that is. Holy crap. Uh, I, I know what Sean's is going to be. Uh, I know what mine's yep. going to be. I was at, uh, I, I, can't, I don't know why I keep bringing this trip up, uh, Smoky Mountain Fan Week in 1994, and I was there for Chris Jericho cutting his head off the day he broke his arm uh, practicing in the ring, and he was just in the ring uh, swimming in his own plasma. I was too far enough away from Brian Hildebrand, the referee, to hear me, but I'm like, you got to stop this match for real. Oh, this guy's got to go to the hospital. It was horrible. And yeah, that was the craziest thing I'd ever seen in the ring, outside the ring. Brother, I'm pleading the fifth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep this to the Cliff Notes version. But I did have a question for John about this because I was doing some research on this this the evening. Of course, the master. I was at Mass Transit. That's the, the craziest. I, it's just so stupid. I, I wanted to think of another one because I hate that stupid moment. Um, you know, you know, I have never, I have never seen that. You're not missing anything. Yeah. It's just, it's amateur hour. It's everything that you hit, like what you do that you're against. It's horrible. And it was probably my, one of my two last shows I went to. That was it. They bro- finally broke me. And the other one, and this is why John said, he knows what I'm going to say is, uh, November 22nd, 1996 in Webster town hall, Webster, Massachusetts, which is in the middle of nowhere. These shows, this is the I was going to ask you, John. These shows were coming up because uh, they were trying to book Salisbury. And uh, there's a place over there called Champs, which is the, kind of the wrestling. Do you know where I'm talking about? I know exactly what you're talking about. I, if we're talking about the same place, um, I went to a WWF show there in 82. The reason I'm asking is an organization called New England Pro Wrestling got booked there as opposed to ECW. And that's why in, uh, cause they, they went there once in 95 and then 96, they got kicked out of there cause of the renovations and this group NEPW uh, jumped in. I guess that's why they had to go to places like Webster town hall. Do you know what the group is? Was this a Tony rumble group? I don't think so. I'm going to guess. And I bet Lou will have the information for us. I think that is I, I Sheldon Goldberg. I think. Okay. I'm guessing it's probably probably would have been an easy thing because they had local connections and ECW was still reasonably new at this point. They just gotten on TV and um, locally. So I could see where that would happen. But so they end up having to go to the Webster Town Hall. They have an attendance of 300. Eh, It sounds about right. This had Dreamer and Beulah beating Shane and Francine, which put me in a good mood. Taz choking out Spike, some guy named GQ Gorgeous, which was, you know, some idiot they pulled out of the sands because someone couldn't make it. Getting beat by Louie, which I guess is better than getting beat by New Jack. But the the best part was that ECW champ Sandman against Raven. And I've told this story before. They fought their way into the, uh, as opposed to our concession stands, as you would have in Memphis. We have the comptroller office, 
which is where the pinfall finally took place with a woman working late doing her dutiful Webster Town Hall business and screaming at them to take it outside. Take it outside! <laughs> which is still, uh, is still my crowning moment. for. So I guess it was a good thing that they got thrown out of Salisbury because I would have missed this wonderful moment. <laughs> Ryan Damon asks, what happened to the pro-Hillary heel? I believe he is referring to the progressive liberal Daniel Richards. How is Mr. Richards doing, Bo? He's doing well. He owns his own real estate business, and he's doing real well. Still wrestles. <clears throat> he's taken a couple months off. He wrestled for me up until Thanksgiving, and then he, he tried to heal up. He's got a couple injuries that he's had for a long time. He's trying to heal up. One of them he got like a month before we went viral and were on every news network in the world. And he was having to do all that media and work hurt all during that stuff. And, and he just, he told me uh, around Thanksgiving, I need to take a couple months off. And I said, that's good. Just tell me when you're ready to come back to work. One last quick one for you, Bo, before <laughs> I get to the main question is, because uh, I'm actually, I've never heard of this. From Eddie Wright, what happened in the Memphis Bunkhouse match in 1985? It looked like they had Ole throttling Lawler. And keeping him out of the main match was this planned by Dusty and Oli? Do, do you know anything about this, Bo? Oh yeah, it's it's the Andersons and Tully with Dusty Magnum and Lawler. Oli won't sell nothing. They don't do nothing. The match is terrible. I say yes on both parts. Oli hated Tennessee wrestling. He could not understand it, and he hated everybody involved in it. And Dusty was mad at Lawler and Jarrett for canceling him years before. And he held a grudge for years about it. Now I'll get to the last question. I just had a, I just saw those at the bottom. I'm like, I got to get these two real quick. Jamie Waldrop, do you think Ron Wright could get over in today's environment? And could Ron Fuller have righted the NWA if named president over Jim Crockett? The Ron Wright question, absolutely, positively, no. He would not be allowed to be Ron Wright in today's wrestling. Who is going to let him? What guy on the national level in today's wrestling is going to let him hit him with a chisel? <laughs> Who's going to turn him loose on a live microphone? If, if I had a Ron Wright today, in say a 20-something-year-old Ron Wright today, I could take him to Hazard, Harlan, Pikeville, Kentucky. I could take him to West Virginia. I could take him to Stickleville, Virginia and he would be money in these small mountain towns. On a national level, he would never be allowed to be Ron Wright. And the thing about Ron, Ron was not just a Southerner. Everybody thinks of East Tennessee as being a South. It is the South. But we also are Appalachians. We're mountain people. We're proud of that. And Ron knew how to work these towns and get heat here and get over here, same way that I do, because I watched it growing up. I watched them, what they did, the people that taught them. Well, you go out there and you do everything that makes you mad. You lie, you cheat, you do everything that, that would make you mad as a human being, and it works in these mountain towns. Would not work in today's wrestling. Nobody would know how to work with Ron Wright. I mean, no young guy would know how to have a match with Ron Wright. Is the Ron Fuller? No. It's a no. NWA was going to die no matter what. It was done. Cable TV had taken over. Jealousy and egos had got in the way if the NWA stuck together, but they weren't going to. Because here was the mindset of all the NWA guys. We'll let him get him, but he's not getting me. We'll let him get that guy too, but he's not getting me. They all were out for themselves. They all wanted to be the last man standing. Guess what? They weren't. My answer was Ron was too smart to take the job. <laughs> I'm glad Bo said what he said because it, it's the truth. and It's not a, a knock against Ron Wright. Just what he did was way different than what wrestling has been for at least the past 30 years. Now, Ron in his prime, if you took him to any territory, he'd get over Yes. As a wrestler, because he, he could talk and do the. See, he was a proud hillbilly. His interview style was that of an old free will Baptist preacher, where he <gasps> breathed like that in between speaking. Appalachian people are proud. We're tough. We're coal miners. We're tobacco farmers. We're, we're 
lumberjacks, you know, but I would not book Ron Wright in Knoxville or Johnson City or Kingsport now if I had him because these towns are not what they used to be. So many people have moved in here from outside. So many businesses have came in here. The the, the culture, the, the structure, everything is different. Small mountain towns, what Ron Wright did still works. I know that because I'm still doing it. But in your modern technology centers, your modern cities, your your modern wrestling fans, it does. Hey, when we were having that great run just a few years ago in East Kentucky, we were doing business in little bitty towns like Hyden and Hindman and, and Jackson and uh, Lost Creek and, and places, you, just dots on the map. We were we ran a town, the population of the town, Boonville, Kentucky. The population of that town is 96 people. We drew over 400 people in that town. Not a surprise because nothing ever comes there. Right. So we were doing all these little towns and doing all this business over there. And Kyle, he wanted London. I want to run London. I want London, Kentucky, which is about halfway between Knoxville and Lexington, Kentucky. And I said, our stuff does not play there. Only during the county fair does it play. The rest of the time, they're too modern. They're too uppity. They, they're the smart fans. It does not. And we tried it. He tried it against my better, and it just it did not work. And I said, we have to stick to the little bitty towns, the mountain towns, the mountain people, because I go out there as a heel. People know I'm from East Tennessee. People know I'm a proud Appalachian because I talk about it. I live it. I know the history of these mountains. And I go on television and I say, shut up, you bunch of hill jacks. Hill jack is a Appalachian word. It's a racial slur. Oh, because I, I, I'd never heard that word before yeah. just now. It, you, you're proud to be a hillbilly. I'm a hillbilly. Uh, you're, you're a hill jack. They're ready to fight. It, it, it was a word that came from the Civil War, Ohio people and people that sided with the northern states referred to Appalachians who were on the southern side as heeljacks. And it's a put down. You're ignorant, you're barefooted, you know, you're toothless. Every every bad stereotype that a hillbilly has, that's a hilljack. So if I go on TV and I say it, it hurts much worse than if Daniel Richards was to say it. Because I'm one of them calling them that. That's the kind of little stuff that Ron Wright got. And that's the kind of stuff that I've from doing history and studying and listening and watching people in this business about what works here does not work wherever else. That's fine. I've made a living for 31 years going to these small mountain towns, and I don't plan on stopping now. But Ron Wright, he was the first, because he was the first guy from here that knew he took a little bit from all the other stars that came here before him, and then he made it his own. And, and that's what you have to do. It's it, Appalachian people are like no other people. And for you guys, you probably say Appalachia. Appalachia is north of I-19 in West Virginia. That's where it changes. That's where there's no sweet tea. That's where there's no snuff. That's where, where they pronounce it different. From that point south, we're Appalachians. We have a breed of people in these mountains that do not exist. In, it's a race of people, Melungeons. Look it up. They do not exist anywhere else in the world. They're Appalachians. And if you see them in the towns, boy, you get on one of them. It's you talk about heat. It it, it works, but then you probably gonna have to fight one of them in the parking lot when you get done. Yeah, uh, it sounds like you don't want that, <laughs> right? So, but what Ron Wright did would never work today in, on a modern level. It would still work right here in these mountains. He would still be getting stabbed. He would still be getting shot at. He would still be fighting people to the ring and from the ring. But nationally, worldly, it's a completely different world. 
once again, talk about Smoky Mountain Fan Week. Back in 94, once again, we went to, I mean, I think we've talked about it on this show, but a long time ago, we went to a place called Saltville, Virginia, and I swear to God, it was like I had walked in onto a set of the Twilight Zone. It was a place that time had left behind. It was insane. I ran that town every month for a long time, and I made a lot of money in that town nice. because I knew what to give them. And it was walking back in time. I had a African-American guy working for me. We called him Fast Eddie, but he wanted to be Pork Chop Thomas. He wanted to be a tribute to like Iceman Parsons and Pork Chop Cash because he had watched him as a kid. And the first night in Saltville, Virginia, that he's there, first night he's there, I go up to him with his opponent and I said, I said, Eddie, all comedy. All comedy, nothing serious. And that's not me. I'm I'm I like the riots. I would much rather have someone try to stab me than say, hey, good show. And he looks at me and I said, here's why. If you're funny, they'll laugh. If you're serious and you're beating him up, they're going to kill you. And he's a baby face. If you're serious and he's beating you up, no one cares. So he goes out and he he did all comedy and he came back and he told me, he said, I I got to the ring and I realized it. He said, because those people looked at me like they have never seen a black man in their life. And I said, some of them probably never have other than on television. Mm -hmm. And so we're doing interviews for the TV for Saltville. And I have him do a little, you know, 10 second stand up coming to Saltville. And he's, and I did not air it because I just, I've still got it somewhere. He says, that's right. You've read about it. You've seen it on television. You've seen it on the news. A real live black man is coming to Saltville, Virginia. <laughs> but there's towns that, I mean, the stories of Ron Wright and the Stomper and Junkyard Dog and Norvell Austin and fighting the Klan in the parking lot in Harlan, Kentucky. There's still places that are just so far back in the mountains. We were in St. Charles, Virginia, which uh, was I've been in a riot there so bad that they had to give us a, a police escort to the state line 48 miles away. But I saw a payphone the other night, and that just threw me. And, and I thought, there's a payphone. Someone walked up and started using it. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> That's great. And I just thought, this really is the land that time has forgot. And the mascot of the school that we were wrestling in is the midgets. I can't believe that someone has not complained about that. One that changed to little people or something else. There's another place in Kentucky. The mascot is the mad dwarfs. <laughs> this is the school. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Oh my so, God. I mean, <laughs> the people that don't get me that are modern fans or whatever. That's fine. They, they've not lived my life. They've not went through what I've went through, you know, but I have, and I'm still going to these towns, and I will be going to these towns until the good Lord says you're done. But you still have to be smart about it. It's crazy. Some towns, they're now like they're on the Internet. They still believe, even though they read about it on Facebook or they read about it, on, they still believe when you get in front of them yeah. because it's been taught to them for years. Because Granny and Papa are saying, when I was a kid, there was this wrestler named Ron Wright that was the meanest man. Him and his brother were the meanest men on the face of the earth. They would hit people with this spike or the chisel. They would use chains. They would take lit cigars and stick them in the eye of their opponent. They would take their false teeth out and rake them up and down the guy's eyes and forehead until he was bleeding. So. They believe, and they've heard the stories, and they still believe. 
And I'm also glad you said what you said about the Fullers running the NWA. The NWA was doomed, as we talked about on this show. I loved the territories. I miss the territories. But the need for the territories went away, as you said, with cable and with advanced, you know, uh, transportation methods. I mean, it was just that simple. But I, I mean, Bo, once again, you have been a phenomenal guest. Thank you for coming on. Oh, I'm glad glad to do it anytime. I, I like answering people's questions. I like talking about old time wrestling, especially people that I know or stuff that I've lived. You know, I, I like listening to you guys. I don't listen every week because my schedule, I'm helping raise a three-year-old nephew. So that takes a lot of time, but I still like to catch on. I keep up on the Facebook, stick to wrestling Facebook, and I like to know what's going on. And, uh, you know, I enjoy this program. Well, and we thank you for putting up with our accents. Hey, I started, and I forgot I started to say at the beginning, I'm not <laughs> the only one with a funny regional distinct accent on this program tonight. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I hope all the Stick to Wrestling people enjoyed hearing that interview as much as we enjoyed talking to Bo James. little follow-up I wanted to share, Sean, with you in the audience about like what Bo was talking about you know, in small towns, like, you know, you might not want to be the census taker doing the wrong thing. I, in 95, my friend Steve Walsh and I, we, we did some Smoky Mountain shows. And then Monday, we drove all the way west to Memphis to catch the, you know, the Memphis show, the Monday night show. So the next day, it's a Tuesday. We're driving from Memphis to Louisville. And we decided instead of taking I-40 and I-65, which is the traditional route, we went a different way, which looked about the same on the map. And it wasn't. It added like at least two hours to the trip. And we're on this highway. It's like this, this deserted highway in the middle of southern Indiana. And we've got to take a leak. And there's like no rest areas, no like malls, nothing. So we're like, you know, after maybe a half an hour of driving, we're like, screw it. We're going to pull over and just take a leak somewhere. And again, we're in southern Indiana. I don't know the name of the town or anything like that. But as soon as we pulled off the highway and started driving around this town, there was no way we were doing what we were planning on doing. These people take live for your die seriously. I mean, <laughs> it's uh, outsiders are looked at with curiosity. We have a couple places in Massachusetts. I mean, not to this extent, but. I mean, Charlestown's famous for it, mm-hmm. where you can have a criminal, uh, some kind of a crime taking place anywhere, and you'll no one will talk. You know, the running joke is you'll have seventy-two people in the bathroom at the same time if some crime took place in the bar. So, I mean, it's some people just don't don't like outsiders. No, I mean, I know someone who grew up in Southie, and if someone walked into a bar and they didn't know who that person was, that person was getting assaulted. And, well, and I mean, and it's. Look at it this way. It's like the old Satchel Page line. Just because you're paranoid, it doesn't mean someone's not following you. Exactly. You know, so it's, I mean, they may be paranoid for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> I, one thing I wanted to talk about really quickly, I have, a, and before we bring on our next guest, I have created a new word in the English language. It's called Drozd, and it's named after Darren Drozdoff, who was paralyzed after an in-ring accident. And I watched the NXT show from last Saturday night, okay? It was a really good show, but I'm telling you right now, someone's getting drawsed probably, I don't know, within the next year or so, because they do so many dangerous and unnecessary spots, it makes no sense. And, you know, if you do one incredibly crazy spot per show, all right, you got to do that for the audience. But when you're doing them continuously throughout the night eventually someone's going to get hurt. And unfortunately, you're getting to the level, or you're getting to that point now where it's going to take some kind of horrific tragedy to get them to stop doing it. Because it's a one, can you stop this at this point? You just can't sustain this. It's, and I have been saying that you, we've been, ha- in the next year, they've been doing this kind of stuff for 10, 15 years now. You know, in some places earlier. Yeah, it's going to happen at some point tragically i'm not happy about it it's it's terrible but you can't just with the law of averages one of these things is going to go horribly wrong at one point yeah i mean they really they've really ratcheted it up i mean i I, don't get me wrong it was a good show the nxt show 
if you get WWE Network, I recommend it for, you know, I know we have an old school audience, but I recommend it anyway. But yeah, I mean, I just don't want to be in Vince McMahon's shoes the next time someone gets draws. Oh, you can't say, you know what? You can't say he has not had enough warning about this. And this is a spot where one of these guys have to be, you know, adults and go, you know what? We got to tone this down because we're just asking for, you know, this is going to happen. You can't look at this and see this night in and night out and not go, what, just again, the law of averages. One, one of these things is going to go bad. And you're, you're, it's an act of God has gotten to this point that you haven't had it happen more often. Yeah. Well, Nashua, New Hampshire's own Triple H, I'm calling on you to make this happen. All right. And now we're rolling into our next segment. We have a really interesting guy. Both Sean and I have known this person on the internet for close to 20 years. He is one of our favorite Southern California lawyers. I want to bring on Mr. Bob Parsons. Bob, thank you for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. No worries. So tell us a little bit about yourself growing up as a wrestling fan. Well, by way of deep background, I was an Army brat. We moved all the time. Late in my father's military career, he was stationed on an assignment at the Twin Cities Armory. And one January day, he comes home, January of 1968, to be precise. And, quote, some guy at work gave him tickets to wrestling on the upcoming Saturday night, which I had never seen. I asked enough questions that my nine-year-old fourth-grade self determined it was basically grown-ups fighting, and that was good enough for me, so we went. On Saturday night, I had never seen wrestling on television, knew nothing about it, and it was love at first sight. Nice. Um, My dad was sitting on my left, and the older guy who may have been all of you know, 35 sitting on my right knew the storylines and completely spoon fed me the version I'd get on television of the feuds and the relationships and who was who and why I should be, why this person was the good guy and why this person was the bad guy. And I was hooked. It was love at first sight. I'm enjoying this. So you like immediately started watching on TV every week. Well, Twin Cities had the same programming that they did in Milwaukee when I lived there, which was our next stop after the Twin Cities, that they would show wrestling one hour on Friday at 5 p.m. and then a replay of that show at 11 a.m. on Sunday, unless the Saturday night live program was in that market, in which place you got a a new television on Saturday night, live show on Saturday night at the arena and then new television again on Sunday morning. So I watched my first TV programming the night after my dad took me to watch Vern Gagne defend the AWA championship against hard boiled Haggerty. So I have to ask, tell me some of the guys and some of the stuff you were seeing back then. Cause this is a pretty good stretch for the AWA. Well, my first card, I, thanks to the internet and my dear friend Jim Zordani, I've reconstructed the show we had to have seen. It was January 13th, 1968. Main event, Vern Gagne against hard-boiled Haggerty. Bill Watts teamed with the mighty Igor Vodic against Dr. X and a mystery partner who turned out to be Mad Dog Bashan. Harley Race defeated Rock Rogowski. Luke Brown defeated George Gadaski, and Rene Goulet defeated Mark Starr. I guess I could say that Bill Watts was my first favorite wrestler because Cowboys are cool. <laughs> oh, yeah. So that was the order of the matches, and it was just a really fun evening. My dad was a great sport about indulging. Well, he, he was taking credit and or blame for making a fan out of me, so he was a good sport about taking me to wrestling matches. And I discovered wrestling magazines the following summer, and he helped finance that habit as well. He, he was just, uh, he created a monster and he owned that. Oh man. My dad hated the fact that I was a wrestling fan. We had, I've said this on the show before, we had live WWF wrestling once a week, every Friday night, a mile from where I lived. And the whole time I lived in North Attleboro, I went to four shows and every time I had to like sneak out and saying, Oh, I'm going to the junior high school dance or whatever and come home smelling like cigars. <laughs> Bob, when did you first get to see uh the Dustin Dick show? 
Let me see. There was, I saw Dusty, he had only been on AWA television for two or three weeks, and he came to, we were in Burlington, Iowa by that time, which is where I went to high school uh, after my father retired from the service. And Dusty was in a second or third bout on a four-match card against Chris Markoff. And one of the things about being in southeastern Iowa is we get a hodgepodge of WWA talent who had no presence at all on AWA television. So we'd get a Prince Pollens or Paul Christie, and in this case, Chris Markoff, and they really put on a good show. Dusty's elbow pad changed hands two or three times, and the hope spot was whenever Chris Markoff got on it, got the elbow pad and put it on his fist and was ready to dispense some justice. Then, of course, the referee would interfere, and the locals would be up in arms. But for a town of about 13,000, they routinely drew about 2,500 for pro wrestling, which came around about four times a year. The outlaws... Now, this is from memory, so somebody out there may correct me on this. The outlaws, Dusty was in first. Dick came in a little later. And I absolutely loved their act because everything they did in the ring would make sense in a street fight. It was some really high quality violence, for lack of a better description. (laughs) That's awesome. I mean, and I saw Dusty, his AWA stuff for the first time, probably, I want to say like 95, 96. And he reminded me, I know this is very backwards. He reminded me of a young Terry Gordy. He was just like Gordy. Yeah, I think that's a very apt comparison. I think Gordy was a bigger framed man than Dusty was. But Dusty could really, really go and make it look like he was thoroughly capable. I always put wrestlers through a test. My father was a combat veteran, career military. I looked up to him. And I always ran a wrestler through the could he beat up my dad test. (laughs) And Dusty clearly passed that. Yeah, Dusty, he was legitimately a tough guy and legitimately a great athlete, especially when he was younger around this time. Murdoch. It tells you all you need to know. I'm sorry, I was just going to say, it tells you all you need to know Dusty's reputation when they needed to find a barroom brawler for Vern's movie that he's just looked for dick and dust. <laughs> well, I don't think they had a script for that scene. I think they actually were just waiting around the set and that kind of developed organically, but that's my own working theory. It probably wasn't necessary. The second I heard that you were going to be on the show, the first thing I thought of, and I've mentioned to you about seven times already, so you already know what I'm going to say, is that when is the first time that you saw the man? Meaning Bobby Heenan. That that too, um, too, but Bobby Heenan. That would probably be late 68, early 69, as he came back in. I think Jack Lanza was his first charge in the AWA, but he was you know, already a fixture and had been since 66 in the WWA in Chicago. He managed his first world champion tag team when he was 21 years old, working for Dick the Bruiser. It was the Devil's Duo, Markoff and Poffo. And he came in with Jack Lanza, and it was gorgeous Bobby Heenan from Beverly Hills, California. And he was amazing. He could take bumps like no other. He would sell a beating. He would bleed like Don Slatton and he would make you just wish every evil on him with a 22nd interview. And when he and Bachwinkle connected, which I think was 72, 73 ish, uh, that was magic. They're both really bright guys, really quick on their feet in interviews and absolutely knew how to insult Midwestern blue-collar fans. The 9-to-5 ham and eggers, the 9-to-5 lifers, the humanoids. It was just magic. Was there a difference in Bobby between the AWA and the WWA, or was it the same thing? As best as I could tell, they were about the same thing. He was primarily, I think he wrestled more in the WWA, at least early on. He was primarily just a manager, especially after he started putting the families together. And it was always the build-up, the blow-off that finally do-gooder is going to get their hands on Bobby Heenan. And it was a rare treat when he was in the ring. But he would take the beating because people would get their hands on him. 
he sold a beating as well as anybody I'll ever see. Oh, I have to ask you, you were you were a, a attendee at the Crusher Fest festivities. Not to jump ahead, but I mean, how was that? How was the unveiling of the statue? What were your memories of the Crusher? Crusher and Bruiser lost the title to the Deshaun brothers sometime in the summer of 1969, and Crusher had some career-threatening injury that happened to coincide with the tour of Japan, I found out decades later. And we had moved from Minnesota to Milwaukee, so Crusher returned to Milwaukee Television on Wrestling the night Mad Dog Bashan did the botched blade job and almost bled out in reality. And that was the first time I had seen the Crusher since he and the Bruiser lost the titles. And the crowd reaction to the Crusher in Milwaukee is still the biggest pop I've ever heard from or a professional athlete in any sport. And that includes the Showtime Lakers or anything else across the board. Crusher Fest was amazing. We all know your future guest, Alfred Sumrall. We had been in a chat talking about it. He told me the event was upcoming. I said, I'd love to attend. And he said, well, feel free to come out. We'll put you up. And he very much underestimated my resolve to travel halfway across the continent to celebrate a wrestler from my youth. And I'm not good at estimating crowds. It was a couple thousand easy. They had live music. Uh, The Baron was there. I had a nice chance to talk up Kenny J, who was... Nobody came through the AWA without beating Kenny J on television several times. But he was there, um, looked great, sounded great, and I asked him a question I've been dying to get a final answer to about his teaming with Ed Farhat in the late 50s when it was still DeMont Network Broadcasting. And he confirmed that it not only happened, they did hold a regional title, and Kenny enlisted in the Army because he was on hard economic times and went back into wrestling after he got out in the early 60s. That was the highlight of my day. You have no idea how many times every surefire loser was referred to as the very capable because Marty O'Neill, the ring announcer on AWA television, would always introduce the very capable Kenny J, no stranger to the squared circle, and then Kenny would go out and get slaughtered. Who are you going to call Sod Buster? Tell me, about the, the guy. tell me about this Mad Dog Vashon incident. Uh... It came on television December 1970. It's on the, it's on YouTube. It's the incident where Edward Carpentier is making a return to the territory, teaming with Bruce Kirk, who is the upper echelon of enhancement talent in the AWA. He went on to be Frank Monty in the Alaskans. So they're up against the Vashon brothers, and the AWA was strictly a squash format, squash match, and then devoted interview just to the market in which it was going to be broadcast. Well, the Vachans won the first fall, but Carpentier and Kirk won the second. And that was unheard of. It was going to be an actual two out of three fall match that went three falls. And in the third fall, Mayhem, Bedlam, and the referee got knocked out of the ring. Bruce Kirk got knocked out. The Vachon, evil Vachon brothers are double teaming Carpentier, and then out of nowhere comes the Crusher. Sport coat, turtleneck sweater, cigar, and he goes after Mad Dog Vachon because this started a feud that was carried for at least the next calendar year. While Vachon is on the floor trying to blade, and blood on AWA television was extremely rare. It happened just as the crusher kicked him in the back and actually punctured an artery. It's obvious on the film and Roger Kent, the play-by-play guy was apoplectic. He saw right away how serious it was, but crusher not only didn't miss a beat, he kept the cigar in his mouth. And if you look carefully at the film, there's a big guy in a pink shirt who comes out to help restore order. And that's Bob Windham, who was the rookie of the year in the AWA that year, working under his own name. And there's a quickly dispatched guy who worked in the AWA at the time under the name Buddy Smith, who went on to be Freebird Buddy Roberts. And the guy who finally, in the lower right corner of the last 
the last dissolve of the shot, helping Mad Dog away from the ring, was literally helping him out a side door to the studio at the Calhoun Beach Club into a waiting car to take him directly to the hospital, and that was a very young Oliver Humperdinck. Oh, wow. I want to say this was December 1969. I know it's going to be up on the Six Wrestling uh, Facebook page pretty soon. 1971. It's about to be. Okay, well, <laughs> that, that's It's pretty easy for me trying, as I'm looking at it. <laughs> that's the perils of trying to do anything from memory. Ah, uh, you came awful close. I, we all do that. So when did you move out to Los Angeles? Or to Southern California, here, I should say. 1980. I went to undergrad back in the Midwest, Marquette, Milwaukee, and came out here for the summer in 1980. And winter never came, and I'm still here. There you go. Now, that must have been a shock to the system, because you go from AWA, you, obviously you were watching for 11 or 12 years, and you move out to Southern California, and the wrestling scene out there was not in good shape in 1980. My second or third Saturday night in Los Angeles, Springsteen tickets were going on sale the next morning. And the concerts were going to be at the sports arena down by the L.A. Coliseum. So my roommate and I decided to jump in the car and drive down to the Coliseum to see if, if there was anything actually happening at the sports arena. And the answer is no, there isn't. But a guy at the door just let us in. So I, it was the LaBelle promotion was in its dying days. So I got to see Neil Mascaris for the first time ever. And if that guy's over five feet, four inches tall, I will be surprised. Uh, <laughs> I, I would challenge him to measure that in front of me. But I also saw probably the single worst act I've ever seen in my life, and it was a, just a stocky guy in a retail Frankenstein mask being led to the ring in chains by an evil manager. And the storyline was that he was created in a lab, and they called him the monster. Just creativity run amok with this character. But I saw it with my own eyes, and it was as bad as everybody on the Internet has said it was. I kept up with wrestling out here. I saw both uh, WrestleManias 1 and 2, obviously closed circuit on the first one, but the live portion in L.A. on the second one. Uh, went to a couple tapings of Herb Abrams' UWF show, which was like three months of television packed into one marathon session. So, you know, five, six, seven hours, and they're still going, and it's time to go. A, well, I guess it was WCW at the time, show at the Forum, a some WWE stuff down in Orange County when they were still using the Honda Center as a venue and a local promotion called California Championship Wrestling, which is where I actually got to see Victor Rivera, who was probably like 65 at the time. But that would have been mid-80s. That California Championship Wrestling stuff, not enough people have seen it because they would then know what the worst wrestling promotion ever was. Every match or main event, John. <laughs> I have one last AWA team to ask about, and it's a team that's no existing footage of, at least from back then. Um, and I thought bringing up the Crusher made me think of them, the Dolly Sisters. They were right before my time. As I became a fan, Larry Hennig was teaming, I think, with Dr. X, and Harley had either made the transition to where he was working Kansas city as part owner of central States with Bob Geigel, or he was actually still out with an injury because I think the broken leg was something that actually happened. I wish I'd have seen him. Everybody I know, I have friends who did saw them live. Everybody raves about them as the greatest heel team of all time. And I don't doubt it for a second. Hennig was always on good teams. He was a great tag team wrestler. He teamed with Lars Anderson for years, Joe LaDuke after that. Those were long-standing contender-level tag teams, and Hennig was the real deal. He was a lot of fun to watch. Oh, yeah. Hey, one thing I'm really interested in, like, you, so you're in Southern California in the early 80s. When, when exactly did LaBelle finally close the doors for good? Like, I, I think it was like October 80, but you would know better than I did. Well, it had to be after, I guess it would be June 80, because that's when I saw the show. It wasn't long after that. If, it, if he was still, if he was still had any pulse at all in the promotion as late as 82, I'd be shocked. 
I don't think it was very long at all after that that they just closed the shutters. All right. So what was the wrestling scene? Now, again, I'm stating the obvious. Los Angeles is a huge city. What was the wrestling scene like post LaBelle and pre-WWF start going out there? We got WWF television before the WWF ever did a live show. So we'd get an hour on Saturday morning and an hour on Sunday afternoon, and they were just syndicated, shown on local TV. Then, uh, you know, WrestleMania came, and all of a sudden they're playing the San Diego to L.A. to, I think they're, I think they played the Bay Area, and it became a live venue. But at that time, we're also getting the Bill Watts UWF on television. When did that start? I'm going to say 84 or 85. They had an hour on Saturday morning right before the Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. So 10 to to 11 was Watts and then Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. What could be more different? (laughs) Yeah, once you got the audience, just kind of who's going to turn that off? I think I might have, but anyway, (laughs) was the WWF already in syndication when you arrived there in 1980? Well, with the exception of some of the USA channel stuff, you know, all the, you know, the big shows that would pop up in syndication. No, I think they started syndicating for the first time, 82, 83, because I was completely unaware of it. I, I, other than, no, I don't even think there was. The LaBelle promotion was still in Spanish language and being packaged for syndication with roller derby. And I think that stopped in 81 or 82. I don't think there was any wrestling at all out here until the WWF slash E just showed up with an hour of wrestling twice a weekend, which promoted nothing. They weren't advertising for live events. It was just wrestling and interviews. Yeah, they say, I mean, the the rule of thumb in wrestling is you should have television on between 6 to 12 months before you start trying to run live. And it sounds like the WWF was following that because I I think their first show, their first run in Los Angeles and San Diego, I want to say was spring 1983. And, you know, to me, looking back, hindsight being 2020. If the WWF is willing to fly most of their crew all the way across the country to run Los Angeles and San Diego, I think Phoenix was in that run as well. Once again, hindsight being 2020, the days of the territories were coming to an end, and they did quickly. Yeah, and it was it was kind of like watching an old friend with a lingering illness. The later days of the AWA were not easy to watch. No. I know the question has been knocked around a lot. Could anything have been done to save the AWA? And I'm going to, well, somebody should have convinced Vergani that the, what was it even called? The team challenge, the team cup was a really bad idea because it was, but Vern had been sinking all of his money into fighting an eminent domain case over the land he planned to subdivide and build McMansions on in Minnesota from about 86 and the gavel fell on that in 90. And then he had his personal bankruptcy and a bunch of litigation over the tape library. And there's no way the AWA had any chance at all of surviving with Vern Gagne retaining any executive control. It needed a complete institutional facelift and repackaging. And it just wasn't going to happen with Vern having any influence. He had other things on his mind, in my opinion. Uh, That makes sense. I I have heard a little over the years over the eminent domain case. Obviously, it's very tough to fight the government on these things, even if you're Vern Gagne in Minnesota. Well, apparently he had been leveraging this acreage and using the cash out to finance AWA promotions, and in particular, the expansion into Las Vegas and all that went went along with that. But it probably hit at the worst possible time when he needed the money the most. And the eminent domain dispute started in 1986. And the question is never, is the government going to get your property? The question is only how much are they going to pay for it? 
And Vern either had applied for or was in the process of applying for a subdivision map approval so he could cut up his property into lots and basically start developing McMansions on them. And whatever plans, those were some very noble and probably visionary plans, and they were gutted completely. I've read a lot of quotes from Greg and Larry Zabisco both that he got pennies on the dollar, which is, of course is contrasted against what Vern thought it was worth, which probably, you know, best and highest value and all that. But yeah, there's there's a lingering bitterness in a lot of the quotes you read about that chapter of of what happened. Uh, Eric Bischoff as well has said that you know Vern really got screwed in that. But Sean, uh, let me ask you this: Do you think we're talking mid '80s here? Do you think there was any way to save the AWA? I'm inclined to agree with Robert, but since I have to answer the question anyway, uh, yeah, they can't do it with Vern. But again, if I have to answer it, they have to get younger. They were all they were. I understand he gets nervous about having guys he doesn't trust, but he has to get younger. That was the oldest roster in history. He was running out there. Um, You can have a few vets, but I mean, you have to get younger. And I basically figure out if you can make some deal with Henning and build the house around him. If it were me, and my answer is kind of boring. Okay. Oh, actually, one other thing is stay more regional and protect your own house. Don't go national until you have your product straightened out. That's actually part of mine. And actually, uh, Bob said part of mine. One thing, and I think I've said this on the show before, forgive me if I have, ESPN in the mid-80s did not resemble ESPN in the mid-90s. I mean, I remember at the end of 89, it was announced that there was going to be Major League Baseball games on ESPN, and I was blown away. Okay, this was like, back then, it was this crappy little cable channel that ran bowling in prime time. And five years after that, they got the NFL. But it was a completely different ESPN. And what I would have done is I would have focused on the AWA as being a television product and not a touring company. That would have been big. I would have cozied up to ESPN and I would have said to them, look, it's very important to us that the show is on the same time every week. And I would like that time to be 5.05 on Saturday nights. And I would actually ask them to advertise, hey, before you tune into that show that starts at 6.05, check out our AWA wrestling that starts at 5.05. Would have been a beautiful build-in. Another thing I would have done, almost the Herb Abrams route that, Bob, you talked about, I would have had a whole bunch of television produced in one day in order to keep costs down. Uh, another thing I would have done, and I, I've never understood why Crockett didn't do this. Both WTBS and ESPN really had nothing going on later at night. Why not show the AWA again at 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock on Saturday night? I don't know why TBS didn't do that. Why they didn't have the show on the same show. You're not creating any additional production costs have it on on Sunday morning. Just have the thing on as much as you can. But again, having it on at the same time every week was a big deal because for me, in like 85, 86, you didn't know when the show was on. You know, it was supposed to be Friday night. Sometimes it would be on. Sometimes it wouldn't be. Tuesday night, same thing. And another thing, you know, focusing on the talent, you know, I would try to get the best independent talent out there to fly out to wherever for a weekend to do a bunch of television and you you know a lot of these guys are trying to get to the wwf preferably or to jcp just accept that say look you know we'll give you some exposure fly out keep costs down etc that is my plan to not maybe save the awa but to keep it going a little bit longer than it actually went because we got asked that a long time ago and we're finally getting around to it if they had a shelf full of programming why not plug it in wherever you have a dead zone? 2 a.m., 4 a.m. VCRs were becoming affordable for households. Wrestling fans are going to find it in the TV guide, again, dating myself. That's actually a good model to hopefully breathe some life into it, at least keep the heart beating for a while. Yeah, yeah, we're on the same page. And again, it would not be a strictly television product. I I think if there was a genuine demand for a show someplace okay we'll have a show but 
and my focus would not be on the touring. My focus would be on the television. And yes, I would do everything I could to get on pay-per-view long before December 1988. It's like doing CPR to a zombie. It depends on the year. 84, the AWA was still going strong. 85, eh, it fell off a little bit, but it was still viable. 86 is the year that it really started to collapse. Their roster age was like 67, average age, by 1984. You could see the disaster that was coming. Oh, yeah. I mean, that means for every guy that's only 57, you've got the guy that's 77. <laughs> Who was their tag team champions in 1984? Uh, crush. <laughs> even as a I think. Even as Combined a kid, age of 190. Two Civil War veterans. <laughs> I say that, by the way, knowing that Baron's far away and then Crusher's dead. All right. Well, that was a good show. We're going to have the second part of Mr. Bob Parsons on next week. Bob, thank you for coming out and taking the time with us. That was a great conversation. It was a lot of fun. It is not an effort for me to sit around and shoot the shit about wrestling. It should not be. It comes very naturally. All right. Well, Thank you. I definitely learned a lot from you today, and that, that's not any kind of a, an exaggeration. That was a lot of fun, and we're going to have part two with Bob next week. Sean Goodwin, thank you for everything that you do for this show. I want to thank our producer, Luke Hippelman, for all the work he does, and this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols. Go Vols.